Welcome to the OTMP podcast. We have been living with the uncertainty of COVID in Hong Kong for almost 18 months. Before that, we were living with social unrest. Every day we read about the changing risks of the disease or the epidemic, but what about the psychological impact? For this podcast, Dr. David Owen sits down with Gira Patel. Trained as a psychiatrist in the UK, Gira is working in Hong Kong as a mental health counsellor. She describes the experience of working in mental health during the pandemic, including her personal experience of compulsory quarantine. They discuss the roles of uncertainty and the lack of control in the psychological process and consider strategies and techniques to manage stress and boost psychological resilience. So, Gira, as a family doctor, we're trained to view all illness, all conditions in terms of physical, psychological and social well-being. This has really been a great disrupting event, hasn't it, like other epidemics. What's it been like from your experience as a mental health worker over the last 15 months or so? It's been, I'd say, an interesting journey, but quite testing, I would say. We've I mean, I'm not alone, I think, when I say that I've had to rethink my approach or adjust my usual approach purely because of the length of time this pandemic has been going on and the way that it's been affecting people. So in pre-pandemic times, if somebody came to see me for stress, let's say work-related, relationship-related, we were just dealing with that problem. And there were specific things that we could review and talk about to to help them. And I think with the pandemic, we're, as mental health professionals, having to rethink how we advise people to cope under the sort of cloud of uncertainty and prolonged uncertainty. So yes, it's been testing, very interesting. I've certainly had to branch out into other areas to find additional ways of helping people. From a psychological perspective, do you think it's fair to say that lack of control, change and uncertainty are key factors in driving stress and anxiety in normal situations? But there's something very fundamental about the anxiety associated with contagion. I agree. I think the uncertainty and tolerance of uncertainty is key factors, as you said. We know that certain people are more tolerant of uncertainty than others, and that's that's absolutely fine. It's not right or wrong to be intolerant of uncertainty. But what it means is, in a situation like the pandemic, where early on we didn't really know too much about what we were dealing with and what the process was going to be. And so it was quite common then for people to seek certainty through looking at lots of information or trying to you know follow the news and and latest developments and so if you're someone who is naturally more intolerant of uncertainty you may spend a lot of time looking at websites or getting news feeds and looking at the stats and following them very closely as a way of just trying to get some kind of control and unfortunately as we've seen that can fuel anxiety because the numbers the news perspective changes day to day. And I think in the past, you know, almost two years now, we're looking at the ups and downs that people have been going through as this sort of hope looms on the horizon that we put the worst of this behind us. And then we enter another phase of arising cases or now with new variants is obviously uh, causing difficulty. I think it's natural that humans will try to seek certainty, but in this situation, it's oftentimes counterproductive. And it's difficult. We know that 
One of the interesting transitions we've seen in terms of stress has been the transition from the predominant worry about the disease and the threat posed by the disease to the threat posed by the public health measures and the public health restrictions. And in our recent survey, it confirmed anecdotal experience that at least in our demographic, people are much, much, much more worried about being locked up in quarantine than they are about COVID itself. And of course, you had personal experience of this recently, didn't you? And the article that you wrote really seemed to catch a, a wave, so to speak. There was a lot of interest and empathy from people about your situation. Were you surprised by that? I was surprised. That, in fact, I should... If you remember, David, you'd asked me to write a small piece for the blog, I think, looking at coping in quarantine. And I think it was, you know, going to be a short piece. And I, I found that once I started writing, a story began to flow. I felt a lot of benefit from writing that story. And I was actually, yes, very surprised with how well received the piece was, but also the significant number of people for whom it not only resonated, but moved them. I had a lot of feedback to say, you know, you've been very brave, you've been very open, your honesty is incredible. It's not something that we see very often, particularly, you know, I work in mental health. So it's we're often very guarded about our personal experiences. And it just seemed to resonate with a lot of people. I'm very pleased that it has been read and shared and hopefully been helpful. What is it about quarantine, do you think, that's so frightening? I guess it's a loss in many ways, isn't it? A loss of liberty, a loss of freedom, loss of expectations. It's quite a frightening, worrying concept, isn't it? I have conversations about it every day. My patients are determining whether they're going to see relatives that they haven't seen for a year, whether they're going to take any vacation, whether they can do their job properly. And one of the predominant drivers is, I'm not sure if I can handle that two weeks or that three weeks or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I guess it's one thing to to make that decision and at least in that context execute agency, but to have that taken away from you, that I guess is one of the predominant issues to be effectively have your liberty removed outside of your control and for for no good reason the irony is i I hear so many people saying they crave time on their own they want me time i think all of us when we're leading these busy lives we want space to ourselves but i mean quarantine is something completely different having time to yourself you know and i wrote about this in the article that it's probably not a good idea to tell somebody going into quarantine that you know think of it as a holiday or now you get the time to do what you wanted all this time because it's the forced nature of that prolonged isolation that i think is what scares people when you choose to take a holiday or go on a one-week retreat somewhere you you are choosing to be there and you're in a very different mindset. When you are forced to spend a prolonged amount of time on your own, deprived of human contact, fresh air and sunshine, that really does something to you. And knowing that you're there and you will be released when you're going to be released, it's frightening. It is very frightening to people. We are naturally social beings. And again, I talked about this in the article that we are social beings we we may spend a day not talking to anybody but you know that when you look out your window you can see life going on you can hear conversations you can hear noise you can hear activity when you're in quarantine it's a a very different experience it's isolating it's the the fear is the 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 isolation and, and the helplessness in doing anything about that and you also mentioned about grief and I totally agree that there there was an element of grief and it wasn't so much actually the loss of control because I 
I realized that if I stay angry and upset about being there, that's not going to help. But it was the loss of choice. And I think that's something I've experienced even pre-quarantine was that I grieved the loss of choice in my life. The loss of choice of whether to go to the beach today or go for a hike or whether to work out at this gym or that gym who I can have dinner with without being told there's too many people and we're going to have to separate you. So it's a loss of choice that I grieved. Yeah, I think a lot of decisions are being made around COVID and many for very sensible and reasonable reasons. Overwhelming of the health system in other jurisdictions and the control of this very difficult epidemic process. But we have focused on the physical manifestations of the disease almost exclusively. And I think if we just use that as an example in Hong Kong, we talked earlier about physical, psychological and social. 99.99% of the population of Hong Kong have not experienced the physical manifestations of this disease. We've had 200 fatalities, um, but 100% of us have been impacted psychologically and socially. And when we look at the economic impact of the public health measures, in addition to the psychological impact of the public health measures, it's likely that the health implications of this disease are going to be with us for some time and are going to be significantly greater from a psychological and social perspective than from a physical perspective. So we haven't really began to address the impact that this has had on the learning of young people, the social isolation, the elderly who have not really had the human contact. It's, quarantine is one aspect of it, but this process is a huge psychological disruptor, isn't it? Absolutely, and I, I, I think the effects of that will be continuing over several years to come. I'm an adult therapist by, by training, but I do occasionally see uh, teenagers. And so a lot of students who came to Hong Kong, let's say for Christmas to see their families and have ended up stuck here because of the situation in the UK or the US or Australia, they grieve the loss of exams, for example. You know, some of them obviously are quite, quite relieved that there was no exams, but I think that rite of passage you expect to sit your final exams in high school and then go on to university. And a lot of them are saying, I'm just going to take a gap year without traveling because the thought of starting university online is just too depressing and it's unfair. I think this is an impact that is emerging, but it will continue to evolve over the coming years in terms of people's psychological well-being. And how do we boost that resilience? That's a good question. Something I'm, I'm still contemplating day by day. I think, you know, at times I've talked to patients about this idea that, you know, you're, you're not alone and every, everybody is experiencing this. However, we experience it in different ways. I think there was a quote on social media. It was something along the lines of, we're all in the same storm. However, some of us are swimming, some of us are in rowing boats and some of us are in yachts. So your personal experience of adversity and hardship is very different and I think it's not right to say we're all in it together in terms of we're all impacted in the same way because we're not. So if you are devastated by the loss of ability to travel because you were used to traveling you know, several times a year with your family, that's your impact. It's not wrong to feel that it's not okay to complain about that impact and the psychological impact that has and to compare it to somebody who has lost their business or livelihood as a result of COVID, it's so individual. But yes, I think this impact will be prolonged. It's difficult, you know, we can't give people an end point and say, just hang in for 
X months and that we can put this behind us because as we're seeing, and I'm sure you're seeing in general practice, that the health impacts are continuing to emerge. Yeah, I see huge disruption from a psychological perspective. I've seen children who haven't been out of the house for months and I've seen other people for whom they describe COVID in positive terms. I don't have to travel anymore. I can work from home. I save two hours a day not having to come into the central from Yunlong or wherever it may be and I get out walking in the hills and look at the decathlon at the bottom of the road. Tents are flying off the shelves. People are active there. So it's a really disrupting event where for some people they have retained a sense of normality and even expanded their boundaries of normality. And for others have become almost confined and defined by the negative energy around the process. I do think as health professionals and from a public health perspective that the negative framing around COVID is harmful, really harmful. We're seeing it at the moment in terms of vaccine hesitancy. I mean, at least part of the reason for vaccine hesitancy, in my opinion, is that there's no positive, consistent messaging about the benefits of vaccination and the return to, to normality. And we know from other epidemics of infectious disease, going back to my personal experience of HIV in the early 1980s, you know, frightening people just doesn't work. It's a very short-term solution. And so I think the messaging which has been given around the public health controls has sometimes not been very well framed. There's too much talk for me about the negative and too much talk about the risks and not enough explanation. The concept of resilience I find very interesting because some people are extraordinarily resilient and don't seem to be very impacted. But there's a lot of people who are, as you say, they're not swimming, they're drowning, I think. Absolutely. And we know that a factor in resilience, psychological resilience, is the ability to be optimistic. And naturally, some of us are more pessimistic in our outlook. Some of us are naturally more optimistic. But in my work, I've definitely seen the more naturally optimistic people have done better. And it's that psychological flexibility that they have, that they can see that this isn't permanent. It feels permanent when it's almost two years down the road, but they can see that there will be an end, there will be a change. And in the meantime, focusing on what's happening now, the present, trying to make the most of whatever day you're having is getting them through. And I think the positive impact, I mean, there's studies now I'm aware looking at the benefits of working from home and how this may be permanent change in the way certain companies are organizing their staff and their, their workspaces. Even places like um, Japan apparently are looking at working from home. And, you know, I think of the tiny apartments in Tokyo, which are really not well set up for working from home. But if a country like that is even considering this is a permanent change. That's really saying something, you know, that there, there could be some real positives in how we re-evaluate work-life balance. For sure. I and mean, we know about the benefits of gratitude from a psychological perspective. You know, we know that gratitude is a very healthy, it's something we use as a tool, isn't it, in, in well-being. So a capacity to reframe, to look forwards and see the opportunity rather than the threat and to focus on the glass half full rather than the glass half empty. So we know from dealing with stressful situations and helping our patients deal with stressful situations that there are techniques and tools that can be helpful to adapt. Are there any things that you found helpful during your quarantine? Certainly. I found there were moments that were definitely more stressful than others. You know, I referenced in the article, for example, the discovery that the release date actually 
It was at the end of a full day. And I had a moment of utter disbelief and anger at that point. I think that was probably one of the low points. So something that I used to navigate that is something that actually I was using pre-quarantine, pre-pandemic actually, and it's the idea of acceptance. It's a mindfulness technique whereby rather than resisting or fighting against situations that you find yourself in or feelings that overcome you, you find a way to allow them to be there because in some way this is what has been destined for you at this moment in time. And it may be for reasons that are not apparent. And rather than trying to find out why you're feeling a certain way or why you are in this situation, if you willfully accept, you potentially can make your life a little smoother or slightly easier to deal with at that moment. You know, you may still be feeling the unpleasant feeling, but when you are allowing it to be there and knowing it's there for reasons beyond your control, you're not a victim to that feeling. So one of the exercises is you hold an ice cube in your hand and you know that that's going to be unpleasant and painful. So if you sit there kind of, uh, you know, I just want this to melt, I just want it to be, or, or, or drop it, you're, you're creating sort of suffering. Whereas if you realize that, okay, this, this, this thing is gonna melt one way or another, it has to melt. So if I just sort of get comfortable with it and just sort of let it be there and just let the water just drip wherever it wants, it's actually going to be melting without me even realizing because I'm just letting it happen, not resisting or fighting or getting upset that it's hurting me because I knew it was going to hurt me. I, I use that in quarantine, but as I said, it was something that I was using pre-pandemic and it is something that I teach my patients. I think there's something very powerful in accepting things the way they unfortunately can be sometimes, but knowing they will work their way out if we let things be without resistance. They have a way of changing, you know, that life changes, things, things happen. And the same here for unexpected situations or difficult feelings. I guess don't stress about the things that you can't control and let them go. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. It's difficult though. I come across this in my work with patients is the, the question, but how do I do that? And I think there's a misconception that acceptance is the same as giving up or agreeing with things that you don't agree with or conforming. And it's really not. It's a very personal, willful decision that you make to detach emotionally, spiritually, I guess, from whatever you're experiencing in that moment and just making that moment for however long it's going to be there or that situation for however long it's going to be there a bit more bearable. And so it's really not the same as giving up. Well, it's an active positive process rather than a reactive negative process. And that Very positive. I've certainly found that a few of my favourite examples are active engagement, to be actively occupied rather than inactively preoccupied from a behavioural perspective. So I guess it would fit into the same group of, of, of control issues, letting go of the things we can't control and taking some degree of control over the acceptance in this particular situation. Okay. I, um, I mean, during, during quarantine, for example, this idea of active engagement I, I was, was something I found very useful. I could have spent hours mindlessly on the internet or, you know, watching watching videos and so on. And I decided to try to do something, actively engage in, in, in things. So I wrote in a journal. I was fortunate to be able to do some work online during quarantine. But sometimes I took the time to just sit and just reflect on what I was experiencing and to also think about things that I 
very much look forward to once I was released and back in my normal life. In fact, a few things I took the time to decide I'm actually going to make some changes in certain parts of my life when I come out of quarantine. So it was a very positive experience. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Did you recognise that there were other techniques that you use on patients that you were using on yourself? Definitely. Uh, if you've ever had cognitive behaviour therapy with me, you will probably know that I labour on and on about relaxation techniques. So uh, fight or flight response, which is what we are in when we are in stress and ways of taking us out of fight or flight response are deep breathing and also uh, muscle relaxation. As long as we're breathing fast and our muscles are tense, our brain is in a state of stress that thinks that we're in danger. So those were definitely things that I, I did. And you can do that through you know a few minutes of sitting and just slowing down your breathing. You could do that at your desk as a pause. You could do that you know, when you take a bathroom break. You could do that for a few minutes before you go to sleep. You don't have to be sitting in a yoga studio for an hour to achieve relaxation. Uh, so that's probably one of my favorite ones. It's very portable. You can do it anywhere. I found some of the relaxation techniques I've used with athletes to be helpful. There are those I find that maybe are easiest to teach that often involve some degree of external support, maybe it's a, listening to a recording or, or watching a video. And then there are those quicker with practice techniques that you can develop as a sort of centering and visualization techniques. And the kicker in a, in a rugby match who uh, will bring themselves into a, a, as you say, a center of physiological control so that the the fight and flight is removed and the warrior reflexes are removed and the athlete can then revert into their automatic skill, which they've practiced on many occasions. So that's my personal experience of, of relaxation being very short and brief. And, and we can have rapid changes in blood pressure and physiology doing that. What, what techniques do you use? I do like deep breathing. And as I said, within a minute or two, you can really achieve a measurable level of relaxation in the body. That's probably my favorite because it's so portable. You know, our, our breath is always with us. Yeah. And you can take yourself off very discreetly or, you know, just do that during a meeting. No, nobody really knows that you're doing that. I'd say that's my go-to. I think that one of the impacts of COVID will be a re-evaluation of what's important from a perspective of global health, not only international global health, but individual global health physical psychological and social aspects of well-being and we've talked about this here haven't we and, and we're going to put together a series partly as a result of these conversations of podcasts and resources through our websites and we'll look at some issues like gratitude and resilience and some techniques and hopefully ideas that will maybe help everybody else to look at things a little bit more optimistically so thanks very much for taking the time and um, that's really interesting. I hope you don't get locked up again. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lily. This is the eighth episode in our new series of OTMP podcasts. We would like to thank all our listeners, both our patients and the wider community of Hong Kong, for your comments and feedback. While our COVID-19 updates will continue we will also begin to look beyond the pandemic and further explore this episode's themes of mental health, wellness and psychological resilience in a new MindWorks series to complement the work we do at our mental wellness clinic. The first MindWorks podcast will include an example of the progressive muscular relaxation technique described in this episode. If you would like to subscribe to our MindWorks podcasts and resources, please email business at otmp.com. 
We look forward to bringing you this new series. And in the meantime, please continue to rate, comment and share these podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening.